If you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. It's also printed in the bulletin. And if you uh, would like to follow along in the Bible, uh, there are some in the seats there, and it's on page 1716. 1716. We've been looking at Colossians with this New Year's uh, resolution in mind that comes from uh, Paul's prayer at the beginning of Colossians in chapter 1, where, where he's praying that they would grow in their knowledge of God. And our resolution, similarly, is that we would know God better and apply that knowledge uh, in all of every area of our lives. And in typical Pauline fashion, Paul begins with these great uh, truths of who Christ is and what he's done and, and how that's brought salvation into the world. And then he, he rolls out those truths uh, with application. We're at that point in the letter of Colossians where it's a, a transition point, where, where you have a, a little bit of, of, of who Christ is and then a little bit of, um, of what he's called us to do. And, and that's where we, we pick things up. Now, last week we looked at uh, verse 6 through 10. I'm going to go ahead and read that uh, again. And then uh, our sermon is really focused on verses 11 through uh, 23. There's a lot here. Uh, Listen, uh, don't get caught up in a a detail. Maybe make a note if you see something you have a question about. But I want you to catch something of the the bigger picture of this passage. And I'm I'm taking the whole passage uh, together for a reason here. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, 
nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven and Jesus, our Savior, will you help us to understand this rich passage full of some things that are difficult, but also things that are very helpful for us in stopping the indulgences of the flesh, pursuing the things that you desire for us and that we uh, want to desire for ourselves and often do and still fail to do them. Will you teach us and equip us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've never seen any of these posters, but word has it that during the time leading up to prohibition in the United States, and then during the time of prohibition, that it was not uncommon to see posters and even plaques and writings that quoted verse 21 in support of prohibition. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Without any of the other surrounding verses, of course, but simply... This is what the Bible says. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. A simple editor would have gone back and read the context to read verse 20. Why do you continue uh, to serve the elemental spirits of the world as if you were still alive in the world? Uh, Do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The problem is fairly simply resolved when it comes to prohibition and and that question of uh, of alcohol. But the the issue becomes a bigger issue, a, a more complex issue. When you think about these things as a whole, of course, Paul is talking particularly about questions of certain foods and drinks, but not just food and drink, but festivals that were regular religious cultural festivals, uh, sometimes uh, surrounding a new moon or an event on the calendar or a a Sabbath, certain gatherings together and other uh, rules that seem helpful and and ascetic, self-discipline applied in life. The questions of Christian liberty and being freed from these certain regulations and yet knowing that some things are helpful and good, things in our own context like celebration of Christmas might be compared to a festival or a new moon, a calendar event, or a celebration of Easter, or abstaining from certain foods during a time, fast, or even avoiding certain drinks, whether for health issues or even for practices of self-discipline or, or, or whatever. 
questions broaden out even still more when you talk about Christian liberty and what we're allowed to do and take into our body and viewing different uh, television programs or movies or what kind of language we use in joking with one another. The questions of Christian liberty are all around us and we see and are faced with these challenges over and over again, both when we interact with people who are outside the church and, and, and have certain practices and, 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 um, and habits, but even inside the church, it's, I don't think I even have to go into it at all for, for all of you to recognize how vast an array of practice exists among those who call themselves Christian. And the question presents itself, how much liberty do we have to do various things and how much are we restrained or constrained by certain rules and regulations? Does Paul mean when he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and then let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels? And then still more specifically, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Now to look at this and to understand it in the context of this passage, I want to direct our attention to one verse in particular and then kind of build out from that. Because a lot of times when we come to this passage, it's tempting to get caught up into discussions on specific topics. Verse 11, you come to circumcision and baptism. And it's really tempting for anyone who studied a little bit of theology to say, this is a great chance to teach on baptism and circumcision and how the two have this tie together, but they're not the same. But to do that is to miss the woods for a particular tree in this passage is not necessarily the focus of what Paul is getting at in teaching. It's also tempting to jump immediately to Jewish food practices and kosher laws that exist today and comparing that with Old Testament food laws and what they mean and how they're a shadow of the thing to come. And we'll address that briefly. The question really that should be at the heart of our mind happens at the end of the passage altogether in verse 23 where he says these have not just little value but no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And the question that Paul wants all Christians to wrestle with in this teaching and particularly the church in Colossae is how does change happen in people? When he uses the term flesh here, it's, um, it, there's, there's a lot uh, that we could discuss about it, but essentially what he's saying is how do we stop doing the things that God doesn't want us to do and turning the page, do the things that God wants us to do? And in particular, the question is, How do we engage in that law, what Jesus summarized, the law of love? All of law is designed that we would understand how to love God with our whole being and how to love our neighbor as ourselves, as ourself. And what Paul does is he takes liberty and he points it back 
to relationship. Not necessarily in this passage per se, but it's there. But in the whole of the book of Colossians, and really through all the Bible, the question is framed in these, these terms. What does law, how does law help us to love God and others better? And the question that we should ask first when we come to this passage is, how does the liberty that we have in Christ help us to love God and others better? And so liberty has to be understood in the context of relationships within the church and with God. Now, that's all pointing us to this one particular verse that I want us to start with and then build out from. And it's verse 18. Let me read it to you one more time. Follow along. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, that is a mouthful. And there's all kinds of words that are thrown in there that in some ways help bring light to the passage, but in other ways add to some of the confusion. It's probably one of the most difficult verses in all scripture to translate out of the original Greek. Let me read a a few things a little bit differently to give you some more idea. And then I'm going to focus in on one particular phrase from this that helped me to understand this passage in the context, not just in the book of Colossians, but of all of Scripture. Because this has been a difficult passage for me personally. It's one of the passages I've looked forward to preaching on most in this series. Let no one disqualify you. In other words, let no one put you outside. You hear the whole language of initiation and insiders and outsiders throughout this whole passage. And so when he says, let no one disqualify, he's saying, no, let no one put you outside, outside of the camp, outside of the city, outside of the tent, outside of the, the community. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And asceticism is that word, it, it jumps out at me because I look back at monastic kind of practices and all these, you know, putting your body through these harsh, rigorous things and disciplines. And, and I, I, I am really... Um, against so many of those practices. And the, the simple explanation is that when you look at monastic lifestyle, oftentimes it is very isolated. It's very the opposite of relationship. And so you're trying to get to something that looks a little bit pharisaical, like what Mike read earlier in reading Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. By the way, Jesus preached this whole sermon in a matter of 30 seconds in that parable. I don't need to preach it at all. The parable gets at the heart of the matter. Who is really the one who desires to be in relationship with God between that Pharisee and the tax collector? Asceticism oftentimes is associated with isolationism, isolating the person. But digging a little deeper into this, this this word that's translated asceticism is, is also translated oftentimes as humility in the scripture. As humility, insisting on humility. 
And if you want to be a little bit more upset in your, your whole understanding of how this thing works, the same word is used then in verse 23, which we read. Remember that. These indeed have appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism, self-made religion and humility. But then it's used also in chapter 3, verse 12. Turn over with me if you're looking at it in the Bible. When Paul is telling them to put off the old self and put on then the, the new self, put on as God's chosen ones, he, he includes the same word in his list, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So the same thing that he's warning them against in chapter 2, it seems like he's commending them toward in chapter 3. I'll just sit on that for a little bit, insisting on this humility and, um, and the worship of angels. Now, worship of angels is... Is, is weird. I, I don't quite know. Most people are in agreement. They don't know exactly what this is. Is it, is it actually worshiping or angels themselves or is it the angels worshiping God? There was a, a lot of talk about angels in the time uh, that Paul is writing and, and a lot of engagement with angels. That, that the, the gist of it seems to be that it's oftentimes distracting when it comes to actually knowing God. They kind of got fascinated with angels. I mean, there's a little bit of that that happens in culture today. I think 80s and 90s, you know, all kinds of movies about angels and fascination with angels. It's died out mostly. It's still there a little bit, but I think that's the general gist of it. It's so easy to be caught up in this thought of these spiritual beings being all around us and in, 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 uh, in various forms. And angels are very important to understand. Spiritual beings are very important to understand. Paul even is talking probably about spiritual beings when he, in verse 15, talks about disarming the rulers and authorities. That is, the, the, um, the, the, the evil angels or the, the demons and Satan himself. He's disarmed their power. And, uh, and, and they have no more power over us, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. And we're going to come back to that a, a little bit more as we, as we understand this. But angels are important, but we need to be careful not to be fascinated by them. And then he has this, this interesting phrase going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So it's fairly easy to understand what puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. I mean, sensuous, by the way, is that same word, uh, sarks, or that fleshy mind in Greek. That, so, so that flesh, that notion of flesh and body is, is throughout this, and sometimes it's translated different. But, it, but what he's contrasting there without reason by his, his earthly mind, his mind that can't see true spiritual things. So it's ironic that he's talking about angels spiritual beings, and yet he's blind to true spirituality. Talking about angels and yet blind to true spirituality. And this, this is obviously a problem in all kinds of places around us. People going on and on about spiritual things, but really they're talking from an earthly perspective and not from the perspective of God and what he's revealed to us about himself. And that's the point that he's 
getting at is that they're talking about all these other things, but they're missing that Jesus came in the body, in flesh, and did these things in a very concrete way. Now, that's the focus of verse 11 through 15, but we're still trying to get at verse 18 to help us understand what's going on here. In verse 18, again, probably the most difficult thing here is one verb that's translated here going on in detail about things that they see. So the verb is going on in detail about, and then the noun is about things they see or, or, or visions. And uh, different translations are translated differently. And, and uh, this was something. So archaeology, archaeology is an interesting thing. I have a little fascination with archaeology. I like it. I like the concept of digging up things old. I like old things and, and doing the investigative work. You notice that I don't talk about archaeology a lot in the sermons. And here's part of the problem. Archaeology oftentimes is used in biblical context to try to say, well, we found the stuff in the ground and therefore the word of God must be true. And of course, the problem with that is that when you dig you know, a small part, you can only find a very small part of what's in the ground. And so there's no way to prove that this is true by what you prove in, by what you dig in the ground. You can get better understanding of what was going on in the culture by what you dig in the ground, how life worked. You might, at some point, dig up a chalice that looks like the Holy Grail. You might, at some point, find a box that looks like the Ark of the Covenant. Proving that they are actually the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, other things, is a lot more difficult thing. There are archaeological remains of chariots that sit in the, uh, um, in the Red Sea. Does that mean that that's part of Pharaoh's army that was flooded over by uh, the, the sea when God separated the, the sea so that the Israelites could pass through and then, and then the sea closed in around them? Maybe. But is that reason to believe and change your whole life based on a teaching that's in Scripture? Not for me. And I suggest it's not for you. But sometimes archaeology helps us to understand, especially language. And so the more valuable archaeology oftentimes is digging up in cities and places and finding inscriptions that were carved into stone on the sides of walls or temples. In particular, in 1912, this word, by the way, this one word that is translated here, going on in detail about, it's the only place in scripture that this word is used. It's used occasionally in other parts of ancient Greek, but not with great clarity in how this is translated here. But in 1912, uh, some archaeologists were digging outside the city of Ephesus uh, and found or were investigating uh, an old uh, pagan temple, a temple um, from the time of uh, the Greco-Roman era. And this word uh, was, was engraved in various places multiple times around the site, going on in detail. And what it was referring to in particular was an initiation rite, having been initiated into this temple, having entered into something. You start to see some of the reasons that Paul might be talking about other initiation rites, circumcision, baptism. Even the concept of how does one stay in or 
be put out. Who's in? Who's out? And in particular, in this case, people were, uh, the, 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 the language was, was describing this, this cult or this cultic practice around this temple that had a holy place, kind of like what the holy place is in the temple in Jerusalem that God describes, and they build uh, a tent first and then a building where it's, 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 it's a holy place in the middle and then uh, kind of approaching with, with lesser holy places to, to communicate the holiness of God. If you think, by the way, that uh, God is the only one who designed a temple like that and then you come to other things, you say, wait, wait, how, what does this mean? The best way to understand it is that God uses things that are common in culture, concepts that people can understand. Other false deities had temples with holy places. He uses these concepts to then explain to us spiritual truths that are greater than what could be understood. So he's using this same type of concept, but in this passage in particular, this, this notion, what's happening in this practice is that, that these higher-ups in this temple practice, in this place outside of Ephesus, these higher-ups, what they would do is, they, as they could approach the holy place more and more, you know, the lower-ranking people had to stay out further and further. That, again, is... is but as they, as they approached this holy place, they would see visions... They would see sights. They would have experiences. And then they would take those experiences and go out and tell other people about those great experiences and convince other people that they need to join the cult so that they can have the experiences too. Now, if you think about this, who has every reason to go on about his experience of conversion to Christianity? He's on the road to Damascus. He's a Pharisee above all the others. He does everything right. He knows all the stuff. He's on the road to Damascus to kill some more Christians. And Jesus shows up visibly to him on the road and stops him. And then he blinds him. And Paul has to answer the question that Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Both names apply, by the way. He doesn't get renamed Paul, by the way. That's sometimes misunderstood. It's probably that he went by both Saul and Paul. So, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul believes in Jesus, and he goes out and tells more people probably than anybody else in history about Jesus. Maybe with the exception of modern-day media type things. But... But read through Paul's letters. How many times does he speak about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus? It's not part of his presentation. It's written in the book of Acts. It's described by Luke, a physician who Paul did train. You see, because Paul is recognized, has recognized and recognizes and is teaching them that these great experiences that can be definitive in a Christian's life, that can be significant, whether it's somebody who sees a dream and has Jesus in the dream, 
or somebody who has some type of significant experience in some type of place where they really experience God's presence, whether they're alone or with other people, to insist that other people have that same experience or to even validate your own religion for the sake of somebody else based on those visions and those, those things you see is contrary, is contrary to the initiation that Christ has for his people as a whole. What are the things that we all share when we become Christians? Even though there's disagreement about this, we all share in baptism. Every church that follows Jesus Christ practices baptism. We've been united with Christ in this baptism. We've been washed in that baptism. Here he talks about having been buried with Christ. We've been united with him. He talks about being united with him and being buried with him. In other words, our sinful flesh, our sinfulness has been buried with Christ. It's suffered the penalty of death with Christ. It says we've been united with him in him having been raised from the dead. He's talking about other initiations in the past, circumcision. Circumcision, by the way, is something that is abrogated along with some of the other things that are listed in here. Abrogated, finished when Christ comes. So it had been the initiation ritual for half of the population and the other half kind of enjoyed the benefits of that, uh, that, that other half is alongside of them. Paul says later in the letter, there is no longer any male or female probably talking about how circumcision has been done away with and now baptism is applied to both male and female. In that circumcision, he says, uh, you, putting off the body of flesh, and he goes on to describe that, that, that the circumcision that Christ does is to cut away the sinfulness of our hearts, of our lives. A circumcision made not with hands, but by God himself. And that circumcision, in verse 13, makes us alive together with Christ, him having forgiven all of our trespasses. Now, let me just follow that through here into verse 14 and describe some of what happens in this. In baptism, we're united with Christ on the cross. It seems a little bit strange, right? It's a picture that with baptism, we're united with Christ on the cross, and the two things are inextricably linked together. But here's what happens when Jesus hangs on the cross, and when we're united with him in this initiation ritual. Initiation rituals are important. They're significant. Jesus isn't saying, put it aside. It's a regulation. You don't need to do it anymore. He's affirming, Paul is affirming this initiation ritual, the baptism, because it unites us with Christ. And what has Christ done? Verse 14, it says, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
And I want you to think about who holds this record of debt. Now, this is a very physical, tangible kind of picture in the ancient world, much less so today. But if you owed somebody something, uh, money, property, whatever, there was a handwritten record of that debt that the, 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 um, the person who the, to whom the debt is owed held. And they could take it to the legal authorities and saying, this person owes me this and they haven't paid, lock them up. They could hold it against that debtor. And it was, it was this very tangible thing and that physical record of debt. So he's talking about that written record of debt. And here's what Paul says, that when you're baptized and initiated into the person of Christ, into the, the family, the community of Christianity, what happens is that Jesus takes that record of debt that stood against us. That, by the way, in this symbolic and yet significant thing, that who holds that record of debt, verse 15 tells us, it's the demons who hold that record of debt against human persons. When Satan tempts Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from the tree, he takes ownership of them. They're holding this record of debt. And, and, and Satan, in various ways, in various times, takes it to God and says, look at this record of debt. It's standing against Adam and Eve. They're mine. And in the cross... In the cross, God takes that record of debt and Jesus carries it to the cross and he takes the physical paper and he nails it to the cross with a sign that's very different than the sign that was on the cross that said, Jesus, King of the Jews, mocking Jesus. It said that this debt has been paid in full. That the rulers and authorities don't hold it anymore. That any record that they have of it is false record. It's a false document. But Jesus has nailed that record of debt that stood against you for all of your sins to the cross in a very public way to say they have no more power over you. Jesus has the power over you. And then he goes on to say, by triumphing over them in Christ. He's saying this was all done publicly. When Jesus raises from the dead, what he's doing is symbolically like what an ancient army general king would do after a victory. And they'd march through the city with the troops who were victorious celebrating and the ones who were captured and defeated in chains and being publicly humiliated. Now what Paul is saying, let's tie this stuff together and kind of draw it, draw it together because these are a lot of various concepts, but you can see how Paul, the, the idea here is, is getting at first this question of initiation. How does initiation happen? He's got initiation on his mind, but then he's also considering these two other questions, how does one stay in, belong, 
And then more significantly even still, how does one grow once they're in? How does life continue to improve? Because the picture of initiation and then, and then the, uh, the, the journey to the center of the place, the holy place, the maturity, it is at the heart of what both the false teachers in Colossae are teaching. By the way, this is a teaching that could be one particular person or, or, or perhaps a, a group of people that are trying to lead the Colossians astray. And Paul's very concerned that he, he counters this, this teaching they are promoting the same kind of concepts. How does one get in? How does one stay in? How does one act or mature once they are in? And what Paul wraps up his letter with, verse 23, he says, he says these things have this, this promotion, this appearance of wisdom, promoting a self-made religion, promoting an asceticism, promoting the severity of the body. The people, in other words, like the parable we read earlier, the people who look like they have the most together actually have no power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Now, Indulgence of the flesh is really a sermon topic for what will probably be next week. And, and, and uh, it, it gets into uh, more than just what you think. He says, verse 5, uh, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In Galatians, he uses the term, you know, the, the works of the flesh. So he's clearly got this, this concept of flesh. Put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on, uh, goes on, and then uh, uh, continues with his list in verse eight. Uh, put them all away. He continues with the list: anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. The things in contrast that he gets at are those things that we read earlier that include humility, compassion, genuine love for one another, willingness to forgive one another, all of these relational terms. And I hope that you're seeing in this that relationship is so much at the heart of what true spirituality is, of what true religion is. And so the practice of disciplines the practice of disciplines so much that they pull you out of the world are more a following of the false teachers of Colossae than the practices of discipline that engage you all the more in relationships with believers, with fellow brothers and sisters in the church, but also with those who are outside the church, those who we've been called to share the good news of the gospel with that God has canceled the record of debt, not just for us, but for anyone who would call on the name of Christ. For anyone who's identified by these marks, the mark of baptism, by a true faith, not to say that there aren't false uh, uh, practices, there aren't those people who've been baptized who have no, no genuine faith. Of course there are. But what Paul is, is, is getting at is that, that, that to, to bring true transformation, 
we have to be connected to the head of the body, which is Christ. That's in verse 19, by the way. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, I mispronounced that this morning as well, same way, joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You see, where is power to transform lives? Where is power to stop doing the things, not just that God wants you to stop doing, but the things that you want to stop doing, that you feel like you have no power to stop doing, the things that I don't want to do, I do, Paul says in one of his other letters. Where, the, where is the power to actually stop doing it? It seems like all these regulations, abstaining from certain food and drink, Practicing festivals, new moon, Sabbath. They, they have this appearance of wisdom, but they actually have no power to stop. The power comes from being united with Christ, who is the head. And with that power comes a growth in both understanding and practice that can truly change not just your actions, but your desires. It can truly change how you love somebody, not just whether you act like you love them or don't do harm outwardly to somebody. Now, how does this all relate? Let me just say one word about food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. Listen, what Paul is saying is not just, well, throw out the Sabbath. You don't need any uh, one day in a week anymore. That's all done. Do whatever you want to. To say that is like saying your family, who you love to get together with, meets every week for a, for a meal on Saturday night. And you say, well, I don't have to do that anymore to be in the family. Why would I need to do that? I'm going to do something else. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do something other? But if that family gathering... It's like, I, I hate doing this. I hate doing this. I don't like my family. Well, to that, Paul is probably saying two things. One, maybe you should consider doing that as a way of expressing your love to them as you change your heart and loving them back. But two, you going to that Sunday, that, that weekly meal, doesn't make you part of their family. You feel like that's sort of your obligation. You're already a part of that family. Now what you need is to understand what being a part of that family means. What you need in the Christian family is to understand what being a part of the family of God, by the way, it's dysfunctional at times too, but what being a part of the family of God means. And part of learning that is to gather together at various occasions, various days. We're not called to pass judgment on whether you do it or don't do it, but to look at the food and drink and the festival, the days, the Sabbaths in a new way, that because of the liberty that Christ has given us, it gives us a way of looking at these things, not everything, but certain things that God has given us. We say, this is a delight to do. This is how I stay in relationship with other people in the Christian community, in the Christian family. 
This is how I take care of my physical body that God has entrusted to me and that he cares about. The practice of true spirituality isn't trying to escape the body. It's interesting that Paul even uses the concept of shadow because, of course, he's drawing on some Platonic thought where for Plato, the physical was a shadow of the spiritual. But for Paul, the spiritual impacts everything around us and gives new meaning and value to the physical and the spiritual. That's a good place to draw it together, and I'll probably draw back to, uh, to this passage some more as we continue to look on of, of what it means to be transformed. But I hope, I hope that just in seeing some of this, this, this passage that, that we can kind of back off of the typical, stereotypical debates of legalism versus liberty and, and, and how all those, and, and understand this passage more fully in uh, what truly gives, uh, gives the Christian power to change and how Christ is at the center of that, and we can never be uh, disconnected from Christ. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, your word is, as the Apostle Peter said, oftentimes difficult, or especially the letters of Paul can be difficult to understand. And yet, you have given us your Holy Spirit and the wholeness of your word to explore the depths of what you've revealed to us for our whole lifetime, knowing that we can never probe the full depths of that. Will you help us to understand your word? Help us to know you better and apply that knowledge to every area of our life. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.